Our reading is from Luke chapter 3, and it's verses 1 to 20. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of of Abilene, and during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all of the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all the flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruits is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the the Christ, John answered all of them saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to quench the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. This is the word of the the Lord. Thanks, Steve. Morning, everybody. Good to see you. Um, What a joy to see that this morning for our church family. That's, we pray, the future of our church, those kids growing up um, to, to be here someday, sitting amongst us with maybe their kids here as well, standing at the front receiving their Bibles. That's what we long for, that's what we pray for, and it's a joy to be able to see uh, what God is doing amid, in our midst and, and how he's growing his church here. Um, I want to start this morning by asking you the question, maybe this is something you can talk about after um, with others around you, or you can go home and you can talk to your other half about this, but what is the best supporting act you've ever seen at a concert or a gig? The best supporting act you've ever seen at a concert or a gig. Now, this, there's irony in this question from me because I, if you know me 
and if you know our church family here at Village, which is very musical, um, I'm the last person that should be wading into musical waters here, but I'm, I'm doing it. Um, uh, this is a man that went to a, a Chris Brown concert at the Odyssey before, so that's the kind of level we're, we're talking. If you don't know who Chris Brown is, look him up later, and please don't judge me, please. Um, but I remember a few years ago, um, I went to a concert which was uh, much better than Chris Brown, which was uh, for a band called Need to Breathe. Anybody heard of them? Need to Breathe? No. A lot of blank faces. Well, they're a soft rock band from South Carolina. They're really good, much better than Chris Brown. And I went to the concert and was really excited about it. It was the first time they'd been in Belfast. Um, And when... I was going there. They had sent out a few tweets in the lead up to that gig saying that they were going to have a supporting act, someone who was going to come on before them to kind of warm up the crowd. They didn't say who it was. They left us kind of in in waiting and in expectation. And on the night, anticipation was kind of growing. Uh, We were looking at our watch and we were were thinking, when are Need to Breathe going to come? And I wonder who's this supporting act that's going to come on before them. Now, completely out of the blue, up steps Foy Vance. You know who Foy Vance is. Banger, uh, musician, uh, he's very good. And he, uh, in his own right, probably could have a gig um, that far surpasses Need to Breathe, but he was the supporting act that stepped on for them that night. And he just sat down behind the piano and said, they're coming, uh, and they just sent me out to get you ready, to get you prepared. And then he just started playing five songs, Unbelievable. I would have left after that. It was so good. That's the best supporting act at gig that I've ever seen. I wonder what it is for you. Well, we're working our way through the the book of Luke in this series, in Luke's Gospel. It's Luke's biographical uh, account of the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, We're studying it deeply because we, like Theophilus, uh, we can have certainty that Everything we read, everything we hear about Jesus Christ is the truth, that he is God's long-promised, long-awaited Messiah, that he is the Savior who came to this earth to seek and to save the lost. And here in Luke 3, we have the greatest supporting act to the greatest act the world has ever seen. The people have been waiting expectation is growing. God's long-awaited Messiah is coming, but when? That's the question. When will he arrive on stage? People are looking at their watch. They're wondering. There's been silence from God for over 400 years at this point, but here, in this moment in Luke chapter 3, John steps onto the stage and says, he's coming. He's here The one you've been waiting for is just off stage, and I'm here to get you warmed up and ready for him. Now, John the Baptist, he wasn't your average man at all, very unconventional in many ways. Matthew's gospel, it tells us a bit more about John, and it says that he lived in the wilderness on his own. He had a a very questionable fashion sense, clothes made of camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist. And his diet of locusts and honey, well, it would have been enough to make any dietitian cringe. He's a strange man, John the Baptist, but a man honored by Jesus Christ himself uh, as the greatest of all men. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 11 about John. Because it's to this man 
that we see in verse 3 of Luke 3 that God finally speaks. 400 years of waiting, 400 years of silence. But now the word of the Lord comes to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he receives his unique calling to go and make way for the king to come. The time is here. The climactic point of the story is approaching and God's Messiah is coming. And the people need to be ready. And this morning, we're going to consider John, his life, his ministry, the message he proclaims to the people. And we're going to see that all of it, every single part of it centers on Jesus Christ. All of it points to Jesus, the Savior who's come to bring salvation to all people. John is here to prepare the people to turn to him for the forgiveness of their sins, because he knows that the only way for anyone to be made right with God, the only way for anyone to experience salvation and not judgment is to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's it. Three things we're going to see about this man who was the supporting act to Jesus Christ. Three things this morning. We're going to see John's ministry, John's message, and John's mantra. So John's ministry to start with. Well, verses 1 and 2, look, he again sets the scene as he does uh, as this brilliant historian. And he gives what happens its place in history. He, he wants us to know again, this is historically reliable stuff. You can be sure that this is the truth. And in verses 3 to 6, uh, we see two things about John's ministry. Here's the first thing. It was a ministry that was promised. And the second thing is, it was a ministry of preparation. John's ministry was one that was promised by God, which was really important for the people to know. We saw earlier in Luke chapter 1 that John had been promised to his parents. Remember Zachariah and Elizabeth? Uh, they had received the angel's message from God that said they would have a son, even though they were really old, and even though Elizabeth had been barren her whole life. But God promises them a son, a special son. Because in, in chapter 1, verse 15, it says that their son John will be great before the Lord. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. This is a special baby a promised baby. But the promise of John, it, it dates way back further in history. That's what we see in verses 4 to 6 of our passage here in Luke 3. These are verses that show us how John is the one God promised would come through the prophet Isaiah 700 years before. 700 years since God said that this John would arrive on the scene, and here he is. John's the fulfillment of those promises in Isaiah 40. He steps onto the stage and he says, I am the supporting act. I'm the voice, the lonely voice crying out in the wilderness. It's me, which means that the time has now come for the main event. God's long-awaited Messiah is here. John's ministry was one that was fulfilling God's promises to his people. And the purpose of his ministry is one of preparation. Look at verse 4 again. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. John's role was to prepare the people for Jesus. Zechariah had been told this too. 
That's what the angel said to him in Luke 1, 16 and 17. Your son will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he will go before him, that's Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah, he recognizes this because he sings these words over his son in verses 76 and 77 of Luke 1. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. John's ministry is one of preparing the people for Jesus, but the question is why? Why do the people need to be prepared? Well, verse 77 of of Zechariah's song, it kind of gives a good indication as to why. It's because the people needed to be reminded why it's so necessary for God's Messiah to come in the first place. Look back with me at verse 1 and 2 of Luke chapter 3. This is the time of John's ministry. And Luke paints a dark and depressive picture at this time. These names that we get here, these are the villains of the day, evil men, oppressive rulers, Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate. You maybe recognize some of these names. These are abject leaders as well for God's people. The high priests Caiaphas and Annas, they were some of the worst high priests there had been. See, this is a time of darkness for God's people. They face many problems in the world at this time. But John is coming to show the people that their biggest problem is not out here, but in here. It's in their hearts. Because they have a problem with sin. Their hearts are unclean. And because of that, they can never come close to God. They'll never be acceptable in his sight. They have a problem with sin that they cannot fix. And this is why they need to be ready, prepared to see Jesus. Because John says he is the salvation of God. Unless the people acknowledge their sin problem, they will never look to Jesus as the only solution. And in verses 4 to 6, we get this poetic language from Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 40, the the prophecy 700 years before, describing what needs to happen in the hearts of the people if they are to be ready, spiritually ready to receive God's salvation. You see the picture? The low valleys will be lifted up. The high mountains and hills will be made low. The crooked, windy paths will be straightened out and the rough places made level. And then then all people, all flesh, will see the salvation of God. John has come to prepare the hearts of the people to receive Jesus and not reject Jesus. The proud and the arrogant of the day, those that see themselves like high mountains, they need to be humbled and brought low to see their need of salvation. The lowly and the oppressed, those like valleys, they need to have their eyes lifted up to see their savior has come. All the stones and thorns and obstacles that fill hearts need to be removed. 
Because Jesus is here. And John says, are you ready to see the salvation of God? And we sit here this morning, and yes, it's a a very different time and a very different cultural context to these people here. But John's ministry is just as applicable to us today. The spiritually proud and arrogant in our day, those who think They're good enough for God on their own. Those who laugh at the idea of needing a savior, they need to be humbled and brought low. The spiritually hopeless among us, those who think themselves unworthy of God's acceptance, need to have their eyes lifted up. The stones and thorns of our day that fill our hearts, those things that stop us from seeing our need of salvation, seeing Jesus for who he really is, they still need to be removed. Because just like the people here, we are all in desperate need of a savior. Yes, there are many problems in the world out there today. Climate change, abject leadership, global pandemics, financial instability. But just like the people here, the biggest problem we face is not out here, but it's in here. We have a problem with sin. Our hearts are unclean. And because of that, none of us can ever come close to God. If we are to be brought back to him, then we must acknowledge our problem. And we must see that Jesus is the only solution. And the question for us this morning is, are our hearts prepared to see Jesus, the salvation of God? What are the barriers and obstacles in life which are stopping us from seeing our need of salvation? What are the stones and thorns that fill our hearts which make them hard and unreceptive to him? Is it pride? Spiritual arrogance? Is it feelings of unworthiness? Is it just the busyness of life? The distractions of this world? We need to recognize that we have a problem with sin, a problem we cannot fix, but that God, in his grace and his mercy, offers us the solution. Salvation in Jesus. John's ministry is one of preparing all flesh to see Jesus. And look at verse 3, because here we get John's message. He went proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, what does this mean? Well, the word repentance just means to turn. To turn from the way you are going and to head in the complete opposite direction. Now, why is John calling the people to repent? Why the need for them to turn? Well, it's because he knows that they are heading in the wrong direction. In their sin, they are heading towards disaster because God's right and just judgment is coming against sin. That's what John says. Here's a a picture that hopefully helps us understand what John means a bit more. It's like me turning down a one-way street in my car up there in Ballyhack. I'm driving down this one-way street in the wrong direction, and up ahead, I see a a monster truck turn onto the street. Bear with me. 
that could happen, you know. Um, but it turns onto the street, same street that I'm on, and I'm driving towards it, and it's driving towards me. And there's this guy in the monster truck, he's not stopping for anybody. Now, I'm in my stately on estate, good car, sturdy car, but it's absolutely no match for a monster truck. And there's no way for me to avoid it on this one-way street. If I keep going in the direction I'm going, I am heading for disaster, certain death. Now, here's the thing. In life, it's like we've all turned down a one-way street. We've turned away from God, rejected Him in our hearts. We're driving away from Him in our sin. He's in our rearview mirror. And everything on this road seems fine for now. But the truth is, we're going in the wrong way in life. We're heading for disaster, God's judgment is coming against sin, just like that monster truck. We're heading straight for it, and there is nothing that any of us can do to avoid it. And it spells disaster for us. Death. Eternal death. Unless we turn back to God. Unless we repent and accept his gracious offer of salvation. That's the message John is proclaiming to these people here. He's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's calling them to turn from sin to God, seeking his forgiveness so that they experience his salvation and not his judgment. And the act of baptism and all this, well, it just acted as an outward sign of this inward repentance, of this inward turning, seeking God's forgiveness from sin. It signified their heart's desire to be washed clean. Now, the interesting thing is, in this time, baptism wasn't something ordinarily done to the Jewish people. Usually, only the Gentiles, those outside of God's family, were baptized. It was a, a ritual which signified their washing from their sin, their turning to, to God and, and the new kind of Jewish ways that they were accepting. But you see that John is calling all people, both Jews and Gentiles, to this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. All people have a problem with sin. All people need God's forgiveness both Jews and Gentiles. And that's why in verse 7 we get this strange kind of interaction between John and the crowds. You'd think if, if you had crowds of people who were coming out to the water's edge to be baptized by you, the very thing that you kind of do, that's, that's your job really. As they came along, you'd be saying, good to see you. Great, you, you want to be baptized? Come on, step right into the water. You're very welcome here this morning. That's not what John says, is it? He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What a way to win over the crowds. Snakes, the lot of you, why are you here? Who told you to come? Why does John react like this? Well, it's because he knows that for some of these people, their repentance is not genuine. He knows they're not truly sorry for their sin. They're not seeking God's forgiveness because they do not think they really need God's forgiveness. And so John reacts in this way because this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, it's pointless 
to them, meaningless. They haven't truly recognized their need of salvation. They're not going to turn to Jesus Christ as their Savior. And the evidence of that is obviously evident in the way they're living, because they're still driving down this one-way street of sin. Their lives show no evidence of having truly repented in their hearts. And John says to them in verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. You think that just because you're a Jew, just because you're from good Jewish stock, that that'll be enough to make you right with God. You think that just because you're a descendant of Abraham, the great forefather of the Jews, your religion is enough to save you from God's judgment, you need to open your eyes and see the salvation of God. You need to turn to Jesus as your only hope of salvation. Because if you don't, God's judgment is coming. That's what he says in verse 9. John does not pull any punches as a preacher. The axe is right at the root of the tree. One more blow and it is done. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And I wonder for us this morning, what might we be banking on for salvation today? What might we be hoping ensures that we will avoid God's judgment for sin? Is it religion? and ritual like these people. My parents are Christians. I grew up in a Christian home. Surely that will be good good enough to save me. John would say, no, it's not enough. I go to church every week. I'm part of a, a missional community. John would say, no, it's not enough. I'm a good person better than most other people I know. Surely that is good enough for God. John would say it's not. God demands perfection, a completely sinless life. And that is a life that none of us, me included, none of us have lived. We've all sinned against God. And John says the ax is laid at the root of the tree. And the only way for us to be saved is to repent and seek God's forgiveness through trusting in Jesus. That's John's message. Turn from sin to God, knowing that through trusting in Jesus' perfect, sinless life and his sacrificial death, you can be forgiven for your sins. Complete forgiveness. Jesus died to cleanse you from your sins forever. His death satisfies God's wrath against sin. At the cross, he experienced God's judgment for you so that you, you can experience God's salvation. That's the only way for any of us to be saved, the only way to be made right with God. That's John's message. And in verse 18, Luke summarizes it as good news. You see that? 
Because this is good news, isn't it? Good news for sinful men and women like you and like me. Because God in his love and his mercy, he has provided the way for us to have our sins forgiven. He graciously gave us his own son, even though we do not deserve it. We're driving away from him. But he calls us back to himself. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all to experience salvation through his son. And so if you haven't already, I want to implore you this morning, just as John would be doing if he was here at the front, turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus. Repent. Turn away from death. Do you see where that road is heading? Disaster. Judgment. Death. Turn towards God through trusting in Jesus Christ and know forgiveness today for all of your mistakes, for all the guilt and shame that you have, for sins past, present, and future. Turn to Jesus and know complete forgiveness. You can leave here this morning, walk through these doors as someone who has the hope of eternity in your heart. If only you would accept Jesus as your savior. There is no greater news that I could offer to you this morning. And if you are someone who has already done that, you've turned to God seeking forgiveness for your sins in Jesus, then John's question to you this morning would be this. Is that repentance evident in the life that you're living? Are you displaying the fruits of repentance? John says, you have to. The fruits of repentance have to be seen in your life because that's the way that you know if you are truly repentant. I used to be a, a primary school teacher and I often found myself being the peacemaker in a lot of playground conflict. You know the kind of conflict you get, like he tagged me whenever I was in den, that kind of stuff, you know, it's the big things. But I knew that whenever something did happen in the playground, and, and whenever a child was truly sorry, genuinely repentant, I knew when that was the case because they would display a willingness to own their mistake, to say sorry for their mistake, to seek forgiveness from the other person, and to change, to not do it again, to live differently. And that's the point that John's making in verses 10 to 14. Let me read this section for us. And I want you to notice the repeated question that keeps coming up from the people. It's a great question, one that a truly repentant person would ask. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. You see what John is saying? It's one message, I think, applied to three groups of people, the crowds, the tax collectors, and the Roman soldiers. The principle of what he's saying runs right throughout his exhortations. Now that you have repented of your sins, 
the evidence of that needs to be seen in the life you're living. Being in right relationship with God should change us to want to be in right relationship with others. Look at verse 11. It should change us to want to help those who are in need, to seek the welfare and good of others, even if it is costly to us. Verse 13, it will change us to want to live at peace with others. Verse 14, it will change us to be those who are content with what we have. True repentance will always lead to a change in our behavior. And it makes sense, doesn't it? You've got everyone else in this world driving this way, away from God, living for the pleasures of this world, living for self. But if we've truly repented and turned to God through faith in Jesus Christ, then we're driving in the opposite direction. And we should expect our lives to look different from others in this world. We should expect to see the fruits of repentance, serving others even if it's costly to ourselves, putting the needs of others above our own, being quick to forgive when we've been wronged, seeking to make peace rather than stir up conflict. Those are just some of the ways that we demonstrate the fruits of repentance. There's so much more that we could say on this, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to let you think more practically in your MCs this week on those questions. What could that look like for you to display the fruits of repentance in your life? But the question I want to leave you with today is this. Am I displaying the fruits of repentance in life right now? Am I? What needs to change in my life if I am not? And it's really important that we get this from John's message. Our, our behavior doesn't change in order to make us right with God. Our behavior changes because we are now right with God. We don't turn to God for his acceptance through changing our behavior. We turn to God for his acceptance and our behavior will change. The gospel is never, I obey, therefore I am accepted. The gospel is always, I am accepted and I am forgiven already in Jesus. Therefore, I will obey. John's ministry, one of preparing hearts for Jesus. John's message, one of proclaiming salvation in Jesus alone. And let's finish with John's mantra. You know what I mean by the word mantra, hopefully. It's a, a short kind of pithy phrase that summarizes what a person is really all about. Their life motto, maybe you might say, their mantra. Now, I quite like CrossFit. When I say that, I, I like watching CrossFit. I don't like doing CrossFit. But uh, one of the most famous athletes in CrossFit is a guy called Matt Fraser. He's won the competition five times, been the, the fittest man in the world five times. And his mantra is this, H-W-P-O, hard work pays off. That's what he lives by. That's why he's been the fittest man in the world as many times as he has. Here's John's mantra. It's not about me. It's all about Jesus. It's not about me. It's all about Jesus. He famously said this in another way in Matthew's gospel. I must decrease. And he, that's Jesus, he must increase. 
That's John's mantra. That's what he lives by. Because look at verse 15. The crowds are in expectation. John is generating a bit of buzz. And it says that people are questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. Is he the Messiah? Is he the main event? John says, verse 16, no. I'm just a supporting act. You might think I'm great, but the one coming on the stage after me, the one I'm preparing you for, he is the main event. He's so much greater than I am. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie the straps of his sandals. Do you hear the humility of John the Baptist? He was a great man, a man with a unique and significant calling on his life from God, a man who was called the greatest of all men by Jesus Christ. But he recognizes that he is, he recognizes that he is simply a servant of Jesus, a signpost to the Savior of the world. He knows that the baptism with water that he's offering in the Jordan is simply one of preparation. And what John prepared the people for, Jesus Christ came and accomplished. John baptized with water, but Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. John is a man pointing to Jesus because he knows that he offers something that John never could. Forgiveness, salvation, new life. John is a man who's all about Jesus Christ because he knows that how people respond to Jesus is of eternal significance. There's a sobering reality towards the end of this passage because how we respond to Jesus leads in one of two ways. There are two roads, this way or that. And the question is, which one are we driving down? Because one of them leads towards eternal death. The other one leads towards eternal life. Look at verse 17. When Jesus comes, his winnowing fork in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. We get this picture of that separation, the two roads. You've got the chaff and the wheat. The wheat are those who've repented and accepted Jesus as the only means of salvation. They're the ones who are gathered into his barn. But the chaff, they're those who have rejected Jesus as their savior and in the end will face God's judgment. That rejection is what we see of Herod in verses 18 to 20 of our passage. He's convicted by, his, uh, by John of his sin. But instead of repenting of his sin and accepting Jesus as Savior, seeing his need of salvation, he rejects Jesus. He rejects John, Jesus' messenger, throws him in prison, and we'll see later on that he actually plays his part in both the murders of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a man rejecting Jesus. There is wheat and there is chaff. And here's why it matters so much for us as believers, for us as a church, that our mantra is that of John the Baptist. It's not about us. It's all about Jesus. Because the greatest thing that any of us can offer is Jesus Christ. 
the very best way for us to love our neighbors, our work colleagues, our friends, is to point them to Jesus, to the life that only he can give, to the salvation that's offered in him, the forgiveness of sins. Will that be our mantra as believers and as a church, village church? Let's ask ourselves the hard questions this week. I've been doing it myself this week as I've prepared. When people look at the life we're living, do they see Jesus? Do they see we're not living for ourselves, but we are living for him, for his kingdom, for his glory? When people listen to the way we speak, do they hear Jesus? About the salvation he offers, about about what life is like with him, about the love he has and the grace he extends to all people. John the Baptist was a man who was all about Jesus. His ministry, his message, and his mantra, all preparing people for Jesus' coming. And we, we as the church, our role is to do exactly the same now. In the wilderness of our day, we are that prophetic voice calling people to turn from sin to God, to know the forgiveness of their sins through trusting in Jesus Christ. Like John, may God fill us with his spirit and empower us as we go, giving us wisdom and courage, like John, to stand in the face of hostility and hatred, continually reminded that what we all need most in life, what anyone needs most from us is Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you this morning as the God of salvation. Lord, we are aware of our sinfulness, aware of our need of something better, that we can't do anything of ourselves, Lord. We can't bring about a change in our hearts. There's just nothing, Lord, that can do it. As much as we try, we are in desperate need of salvation, of a Savior in Jesus. Father, I pray that for all of us in this room, that all of us will turn from our sin and turn to you, to your gracious offer of salvation in Jesus Christ today. Pray we'll know that there is forgiveness offered to each one of us for all of our sins. That there is life offered to us today. The hope of of life both now and forever in eternity can be ours if only we would turn to Jesus and accept him as our savior.